0: Welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast, episode number 5, New Kid on the Block, recorded Wednesday, October 18, 2006. Show notes for this episode can be found at www.uncontrolledairspace.com.
1: All VLJs all the time.
2: Everybody with a license or an airplane or an aviation business has got a dog in this fight.
3: Statue of Liberty. That is an unbelievable experience to be able to be in your plane, go down to about 400 feet, and circle that statue, and it's like you own
0: Manhattan. Well, welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace. I'm Jack Hodgson. This episode of the podcast is a little bit different than the previous ones in a couple of ways. First of all, we have a newcomer here with us in the virtual hangar, and I'll be introducing him to you all in just a moment. And and second of all, although although I'm still sitting up here in Boston, where fall is definitely starting to take hold, the rest of the gang are all down in Florida at the uh, National Business Aviation Association Convention, the NBAA convention. And I'm a little jealous that they're all down there in sunny Florida. As but well they, you should be. <laughs> but they all are down there, and they've got some great news for us uh, uh, about all the different goings on in the aviation industry, and uh, that's basically what we're going to talk about uh, on this edition of the podcast. Uh, aviation photographer and freelance writer is on the phone with us, Dave Higdon. Hi, hey, Dave. How you doing? Doing great, Jack. Good morning, everybody. And uh, managing editor of Aviation Safety Magazine, Jeb Burnside. Hi, Jeb. Good morning, folks. And the new guy is uh, uh, yet another... Uh, AirVenture Today, EAA Oshkosh uh, colleague of ours, an author and aviation journalist, uh, musician and swan counter, James Winbrandt is with us. Hi, James. How are you doing?
3: Hi. Great, Jack. Good morning. Great to be here.
0: James is just involved in all sorts of things, and I I tease him about the swan counter thing. When we all get together in Oshkosh every summer, we do our week-and-a-half thing there, and then we head off in different directions. And it just seems to me that each year, James is headed off to some exotic and fascinating adventure. And a couple of summers ago, he jumped in his airplane and flew to Alaska, where he was a part of a, a program to try and count the population of, what, trumpeter swans? Was that it?
3: That's it, trumpeter swans, world's largest uh, flying bird, according to some.
0: So James is with us on the podcast this time, and uh, he's got a lot of great insights about the aviation world, uh, and uh, just generally a good guy. So, uh, James, James is here working hard like so many
2: yeah. other journalists. Uh, he's uh, doing his first turn in the barrel with one of the show dailies here at NBAA. So uh, we're seeing him dressed in a mode that we
3: can't quite grasp completely. Yeah, it's a refreshing tie. change. We need to see more of that. I'm <laughs> so, uh, so, next here at uh, Oshkosh.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Before we jump into NBAA, let me just kind of finish, finish setting the scene here. So, as I understand it, Dave and James are sitting basically next to each other on separate phone lines in press headquarters at NBAA, correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah, we're about uh, eight feet apart. I try to keep a distance.
3: <laughs> well, Higden, using his connections, has commandeered one of these sort of executive office areas within the press room for us.
0: Hey, nothing but the best for uncontrolled airspace. Absolutely. And and speaking of nothing but the best, Jeb, where are you right now? I
1: I am down here uh, on behalf of AvWeb, one of my uh, uh, other writing gigs, and the AvWeb team rented a house for the week situated between Kissimmee Airport and the Convention Center in Orlando, and I am sitting on the veranda of that house next to the pool looking out in the backyard and the other houses and the, the clouds in the sky, and it's just a very civilized, pleasant way to spend a morning in Florida. <laughs> but uh, so, do you have your do you, you have know, have you'll, your you'll OJ just, yet? I have my OJ, I have my coffee, I have my laptop. All is wrong right with the world.
0: Well, then I, I guess we're ready. So, MBA, uh, we're recording this uh, on Wednesday morning, which I believe is the middle day of uh, the convention. That's, That's right, day two. What's going on? Who wants to jump in there? What's hot? What's interesting? I don't don't even know where to start. I I guess it's uh, all VLJs all the time
1: uh, down here. Yesterday we saw Honda make some major announcements relative to its Honda jet. We saw Piper unveil its Piper jet. Today we'll see Sirius talk about its personal jet. It's uh, very vibrant, very dynamic down here. Dave, you were about to say something let's a, yeah, let's set a little stage for this first off this is the 59th
2: annual convention of the National Business mm-hmm. Aviation Association and as a as a barometer of how business aviation and general aviation and it, it overall are, are faring uh, economically and activity wise this is shaping up to be the best convention NBAA has ever had they right. sold out Almost twelve hundred, uh, almost, almost twelve hundred vendors. They sold out their convention floor here, well ahead of the convention's opening day. Delegate registrations are up over the last couple of years. This is in the new uh, north south wing of the Orange County Convention Center. When I say they sold out the floor, we're talking approximately a
1: million two hundred thousand square feet of space, uh-huh. and it is chock a block. Yeah. Yeah the, the aisles are are filled with people uh they seem a little narrower actually than, than previous years so the the booths are probably a little bit larger the orange county convention center is uh just a very large structure think of uh uh for some of our listeners might be familiar with the national air and space museum uh in washington i would guess the convention center is about twice that size roughly yeah and it is yeah. it is filled chock a block with airplanes airplane products, people, and other uh, paraphernalia associated with business aviation. And you can go even farther to the static
2: display, and I'll, and I'll shut up after this. That They have over 110 aircraft in the static park at Orlando Executive Airport, and because of a change in uh, the mix, both larger and smaller, it's taking up a larger footprint of real estate than it ever has in the past. Yeah.
1: Another little statistic, uh, before the show even started, NBAA had more than 26,000 attendees registered, pre-registered. And I'm sure that there will be somewhere on the order of uh, maybe 10,000 uh, on-site uh, registrations during the show. Yeah, they could very easily break their record high, which is exactly. in the,
0: uh, about 33,000 people. Yeah, James, what's your take on the whole thing?
3: Well, uh, regarding the size and whatnot, there aren't very many facilities in the United States that can handle the convention at this point. And people are talking about, well, next year it's going to be here, next year it's going to be there. And now it's not just a matter of the convention facilities, but what about the airport where the static displays are going to be And There's talk that, well, Las Vegas, the convention center can hold it, but unfortunately North Las Vegas Airport doesn't. Have enough room to accommodate the static display so that's becoming a factor. It seems like in where the show is going to go in future years. Mm-hmm. And these are the the uh, all VLJs all the time. Uh, it's interesting because there's so much to see here. But I've been covering sort of uh, part of it, what you might term the anti VLJ market, which also turns out to be interesting. You know, it's interesting also, and I'll talk about it more in a minute, but. i what it's the Airbus and their corporate jetliner family of aircraft that they've been apparently doing well with battling, uh, Boeing business jet. And I'll note, uh, kind of in in a media coverage perspective that a couple of years ago, the New York Times always being out in front was, was among the first papers to cover VLJs and kind of give it credence and talk about it. And of course, everybody now is talking about that and the other day in the new york times joe sharkey who covers aviation for them and by the way who was in that legacy over brazil when it impacted the airbus that went in and wrote about that he wrote a large article in yesterday's new york times uh, excuse me it was a 737 that went down over brazil uh, so uh, but he wrote an article again contrary and going about the big sales <laughs> of these jumbo airliners to private individuals. And indeed that seems to be happening. You look at the cost of the Airbus jet what they call the corporate jetliner family, ACJs. And uh they are comparable with the top of the line, you know, your global expresses and whatnot. And that seems to be the way people some people are going. You've got the charter operators now that are ordering them. And when asked, well who is your customer? Who, you know, who's going to be chartering out these aircraft. It's not, you know, well, uh, somebody in France or England or the United States. They're going to Kazakhstan. They're going to Moscow. They're going to the United Arab Emirates. And that's who is going to be chartering these aircraft and also people who are buying them as individuals to outfit because they just find these other jets a little too cramped for their travel. So it's interesting that we've got the VLJs on one side generating all this interest, but yet the anti-VLJs are also seem to be holding their own.
1: It's a quieter market, uh, James. You're absolutely right. Uh, I I attended the Boeing business jet briefing earlier in the week. Since the BBJ was first marketed, and for those who might not be aware, the BBJ is basically the the business jet version of the 737, and it comes in various flavors and sizes based on various versions of the 7.3. But uh, Boeing says they have sold 114. Boeing business jets since right. the uh, the type first was offered, I believe in 1998. Uh, they've just begun selling. Well, uh, they first announced uh, they would offer it in November of last year. Uh, the the BBJ three, which is uh, just a substantial airplane. It's uh, I, I wrote a, a piece f- uh, for Avweb that appeared this morning, uh, covering that and. Uh, uh, it's not pain of heart by any stretch of the imagination. You're talking fifty, fifty-five million dollars to buy into the base model of the Boeing Business jet. But uh, for the right purchaser, the, whether it's a government, an individual, a company, uh, it's the only, it's the only way. To...
2: Well, and uh, Boeing has got, as Jeb said, three versions of the BBJ. One based on the seven thirty-seven seven hundred. One on the dash 800 and the newest one based on the dash 900 you're looking at aircraft with range capabilities in the neighborhood of 6000 nautical miles but that's not the bottom that's not that's not the end of that uh, of that pipeline uh, here at the show boeing announced orders for several vip versions of the upcoming 787 dreamliner and the new version of the 747 that they're working on
1: so if you got the coin Okay. Uh, got they, the t- they, they've got the solution for you. Boeing also said that in its history, they have not, uh, yeah, I guess it does count the the, the BBJ uh, configurations, something on the order of 220 privately or personally configured jets, dating from the 707 all the way up through the 747. And maybe oh, one, of the the most, one of the most
2: famous was Malcolm Forbes' 727 personal mm-hmm. jet or private uh, uh, business jet uh, with the uh, words "capitalist tool" painted down the side. Exactly. Right. When Mr. <laughs> Forbes was alive, there was never any doubt when he was in town and what town he was in because he was the only one that used the aircraft.
1: Right. Arm and Hammer with Occidental Petroleum used to have a 727 also. Uh, so we've had
2: a we've had some pretty good activity t- across the middle uh, middle range here and since we've dealt with the extremes the VLJ and the uh, in in the airliner class uh, business jets, uh, Raytheon announced two variants of the uh, Hawker, uh, the seven fifty XP and the nine hundred XP. They've already logged some sales of that, and those airplanes won't be uh, on in the fleet and operating for a couple of years yet. Cessna uh, is advancing a couple of its models with some incremental improvements and unveiled a concept for what's probably going to be the new flagship to replace the Citation 10. They're calling it a large cabin business jet, but the details on that are still a little on the thin side. Falcon that's, is,
1: there's there's a reason. There's a method this, this madness um, very early in their development cycle, and they are here with this, this LCC, they call it, large cabin concept. They're wanting to get some feedback from prospective customers on what the airplane should be, what should its range should be, uh, its its configuration, things like that. So they're really just doing a marketing survey, for lack of a better term, on that aircraft. And it's interesting because they've always done some version of that kind of survey work
2: mm-hmm. with existing customers. Uh, it's seldom been so public as uh, as this new concept is being uh, dealt with here. So. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of a change in how Cessna approaches it, and I think that uh, the heat of competition is uh, is a factor here, because by letting the world know that this new jet is in the pipeline, even though it's not a commitment yet, and letting the world know it's in the pipeline, it could uh, save them some defections from Citation customers that are ready to move up to an airplane larger than what Cessna currently makes. So it's it, it, it's a very dynamic... Environment and uh, the really savvy marketeers, they never miss a turn here.
0: <laughs> a lot of this news we've heard about over the past months. We've talked about it on the podcast. We heard about it in Oshkosh. Um, are, are there any news stories? You guys sort of slyly hinted to the fact that you were in on some things you couldn't talk about. Are, are uh, there any uh, new announcements?
1: I think yesterday's probably lead story might be the Honda Jet announcements. Honda had had a fairly major uh, press briefing on at their exhibit yesterday morning, unveiled. Of course, this is the, I think the third public showing of their of their jet. The other two being at, at AirVenture. They set the price of the uh, of the jet at 3.65 million dollars. They said that it will be uh, certificated uh, in 2010. They intend to sell manufacture and sell some seventy copies of it each year thereafter they set up a new orders. company and they take orders they from my experience uh, I've, I've had some work experience in Japanese companies from the size of the, the uh, effort that they are making the number of people walking around their booth whom I recognize uh, who and who are now wearing honda jet badges on their clothing they are in this for the long haul
2: the uh... new piper jet i think surprised a few people uh, we knew that uh, there was going to be some commonality in the fuselage structure with the uh... with the pa-46 malibu mirage well it's very similar but it's three feet longer and the uh, single uh... Light turbofan engine is mounted in the uh, vertical stab, uh, similar to the middle engine on a DC-10 or uh, MD-11, puts it behind the pressure vessel as a safety issue, keeps it up in clean airflow. They say that uh, they've already done considerable wind tunnel testing at high angles of attack to make sure that that engine inlet doesn't get blanked out and cause a compressor stall, which is really ruin your day when you've only got one inch and then you're on <laughs> yeah. short final.
1: Yeah.
2: It does look very reminiscent of a, of a Malibu Mirage, but uh, longer, a little more aggressive looking. 360 knots, they're calling for it out of a single with about a 1,300 nautical mile IFR range, and the price on it is under $3 million. It's uh, just about on the same timetable as the Honda Jet. But we don't know what the engine is going to be yet. And if you look closely in the uh, in the engine nacelle, it sure looks like Honda's in- engine in there, and we're told that it's been designed for that. But since they're unsure that the uh, Honda jet engine will be ready in time, uh, they say they're also considering power plants from uh, Williams and uh, and Pratt & Whitney. Yeah.
3: There was uh, another issue that's not as... Uh on and sexy as all the hardware here, but uh, yesterday morning at the press breakfast, among the people there was Ed Bolin, and he addressed some of the challenges ahead. and I know user fees, that's a subject that I believe you folks have discussed in the past, but uh, it was kind of brought up with urgency. One of the questions posed to him was, look, this stuff with user fees, the airlines don't really think they can get away with this do they? And Ed was very stern-faced and said, they have a plan, that is their intention, and they believe they can do it, and they're going to try to do it. And it's kind of, the challenge was sort of thrown out to the GA community we're going to have to do something about it he made the point you can't just call up AOPA, you can't just call up nbaa and the few staff people that these organizations have and expect them to really win this battle we all have to be in the trenches ourselves down there with them and my question is to the other people in the ga community okay what do we do about this what kind of pressure can we bring are there outlets other than calling our congressmen individually and making uh kind of nuisances of ourselves and kind of at some point wasting our breath what is it that we in the GA community can do to prevent this plan of essentially squeezing us out of the skies from coming to fruition
0: i was reading on uh, i believe it was Avweb web uh, this morning or last night about the keynote um, yesterday morning uh, and I don't have the guy's name in front of me, but apparently the head of the United States Chamber of Commerce, is that correct? Did any of you guys go to the keynote? I no, didn't. I didn't. Uh, apparently he came out um, saying that user fees were a really bad idea for business in general. Um, he, he took a, a sort of lo- you know, higher altitude well, view of the whole was, thing, which I thought was interesting. It was an interesting
2: juxtaposition, Jack, because uh, we had uh, Ed Boland, head of NBAA, and Pete Bunch, head of Gamma, Addressing the media at breakfast yesterday morning, presenting a united front, adamant that we've all got to we've all got to get in this fight together if we want to stave off the uh, air transport association's push to basically take over the airspace, uh, manage the air traffic control system, and establish a user fee pay as you go basis. Followed by the general session, which opens up the convention officially, where. Uh, Administrator Marian Blakey of the FAA was there, t- telling the, much of the same crowd how there's a need for fundamental change in how the FAA is funded, and that's been her that's been her catchphrase for uh, user fees for oh uh, well over a year now. Unfortunately, every study that seems to come out from any kind of neutral party uh, supports the uh, general aviation community contention. That fuel taxes and airline ticket taxes are generating more than enough money not only to fund the FAA but to fund the modernization programs that they want without a wholesale changeover to a user fee system, which would require, you know, setting fees, new paperwork, a bureaucracy to handle billing. Uh, it would be many, many times more expensive to simply administer than the system that we've got now let alone uh, how expensive it would be if we let the airlines set the charge, the access charges.
1: Right, all of which is true. I think one of the things kind of lost in the noise here, But I'm not suggesting that that Dave's not aware of this and James is not aware of this, but ultimately what the airlines want out of this is basically to corporatize air traffic control, make it a subsidiary of corporate airlines and, and, and scheduled airlines nationally and regulate access to quote their airspace unquote Uh, and that would be catastrophic for general aviation as we know it the the airlines see the VLJ phenomenon they see the the literally explosive growth in business aviation and general aviation over the last handful of years let's say since, since September 11 as a major threat to them they, they believe fundamentally that if someone flies an airplane from point A to point B and pays for the privilege that it should be uh, done on one of their airplanes mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's, it, it is going to be a battle royal in the next few years and, and James is absolutely correct that uh, in, in quoting Ed Bowen, uh that AOPA and NBAA cannot handle this alone. It is, it is going to be an industry-wide effort, and if we're going to win this once and for all, because it's a perennial issue almost, uh, it's going to take a lot more effort and a lot more energy and a lot more focus than this everybody, industry has been able to bring before.
2: Everybody with a license or an airplane or an aviation business has got a dog in this fight. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's this
0: Here's this piece that I was referring to earlier. I'm reading now from um, AvWeb the, uh, on their website. Uh, it's This is for, uh talking about yesterday's opening general session at NBAA. It says, Caterpillar President and US Chamber of Commerce Chairman Gerald Shaheen stressed the importance of business aviation to the general economy. Quoting Shaheen, they said, "...business aviation allows business to get done," he said, and then went on to lambast the airline industry's push for aviation user fees, which he said would adversely affect business ad- aviation. Shaheen suggested that the user fee battle is not so much over how the FAA will be funded, but who will control airspace usage." And that's from Avweb this morning. I think it's kind of encouraging that 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 the people outside of the aviation industry are realizing this is not just our problem; that this is something that's going to impact the uh, economy in general. Yes, it is.
2: Oh, it'll ripple through every company that operates an aircraft for their business needs,
3: and and consumers. As the point was also made yesterday, somebody. Calls uh, you know see something online orders a product three days later it shows up at their home it no doubt has been carried aboard maybe a FedEx caravan general aviation is doing a tremendous amount that uh, the public doesn't know anything about and as uh, the point was made that they need to be informed coincidentally I happen to be I know that uh, AOP I'm writing some TV spots for them right now and they're going with a campaign to inform the public about their website of GA Serving America, and the four spots are addressing the issues of the economy and general aviation's contribution, security and general aviation's good record and contribution to keeping the borders secure, the community aspect and what general aviation brings to communities, and also a personal kind of lifestyle, what aircraft do for individuals that choose to involved in aviation and I think it is going to really take hitting the public over the head and certainly everybody with an aircraft is in the fight but really I think to win it we've got to energize the people that are benefiting and don't realize it yeah I, I, and, and,
1: and that's I, I hate, hate to you know beat this j drum again but one of the underlying concepts embraced by potential operators of this uh, type of aircraft is the community com- to community, the uh, uh, service, if you will the the smaller group of people going from a business going on a business trip say from uh, Macon Georgia to to Birmingham, Alabama, there's really no easy way to cover those to, to make that trip on the airlines these days. People are forced into their SUVs and uh, the the day jet concept would allow, those individuals those business people to make that trip in one day and get home and be with their family that night otherwise they would have to spend the night in Birmingham or something like that the airlines scheduled airlines as we know them now completely missed and overlooked that market when we talk about the potential for general aviation we talk about the potential for business aviation uh, and in fact, perhaps uh, downscale air carriers that's where the the growth market is that's the, that's where the potential is and uh, the the airlines basically want to try to take over that market in my mind and general aviation is is really the, the way to to meet those needs the, the the needs of those various communities and those various business people they have to be informed uh, of of what's happening and what missed opportunities may may arise if this is allowed to to go forward I'm um, considering how
2: successful the airlines are running their own businesses I'd love to see them to try to get in something at this small scale well, it would be nice to see them bomb on a small scale for a change after bombing so well on the larger scales.
1: A- absolutely true um, the danger is that they could screw up everything for everybody and uh mm-hmm.
0: again we can't let that happen
2: no
1: no
0: so what else is going on down there we've talked a lot about uh aircraft uh, stories uh what about uh, other types of product stories are there any interesting avionics stories or other aviation products seeing a number
2: of new uh new uh cockpit enhancements in the uh, in the realm of either synthetic vision systems or enhanced vision systems not brand new to the market by any means but the uh, the reach and the uh, uh, extent of their availability and the price points are starting to move in a direction that I, I think in another five years will make some of this uh, uh, commonplace in our single engine piston aircraft. Synthetic vision systems basically use uh, uh, geographic landmass data and a GPS position data to construct an image shown on a on a computer-like screen in the cockpit that shows you the world ahead. Uh, enhanced vision systems use uh, a, a form of uh, infrared vision cameras to uh, give you a black and white view of the world through fog and clouds and precipitation. In the black hole, an unlighted runway in the middle of the night, the white paint stripes will stand out because they have a different temperature than the uh, darker pavement. Not all of these are certified for instrument use. They do meet uh, TSO and STC requirements. But let's face it, when you're you're shooting an approach to 203 eighths of a mile, the uh, little bit of edge of being able to see the runway edges and the white paint stripes uh, before you actually break out of the clouds is a huge, huge benefit and asset for safe operations. We're seeing more of those here. We're also seeing uh, a, a little bit of advance in weather systems, but that's another one where it's starting to be more uh, incremental than uh, as evolutionary rather than revolutionary. In-flight entertainment systems, they're booming. Uh, they're getting smaller, more compact, uh, lower cost, the same way with broadband. High-speed broadband is on its way into the aircraft cabins now.
3: Yeah, broadband has been having a little bit of a rocky time in August with uh Boeing announcing its discontinuance of uh, Boeing connections, Uh, that didn't pan out in their efforts to kind of make money off of uh, wiring commercial aircraft for broadband service, and that also threw a kink into uh, Rockwell uh, Rockwell Collins' uh, exchange uh, broadband offering because they were using the Boeing system. EMS satcom has come out. They have some technology that Honeywell is now announced they're going to be adapting. And their newest uh, antenna is about 13 pounds, uh, low drag profile, and it is intended for general aviation aircraft. So we may be seeing broadband in even our airplanes they're down the road a little while. But uh, it does appear that that is going to be happening.
1: Yeah, I think uh, uh, someone just. Kind of put the, the hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think it's an evolutionary thing. Uh, the, the synthetic vision products, for example, have been around a handful of years on the higher end business jets. Gulfstream now offers them as as standard, I believe, on on the G550 and, and a couple other models. And certainly they're they're retrofitable options to other uh, aircraft in the in the Gulfstream fleet. Just as with anything else, though, we're seeing miniaturization of these products, improvement of the software, and we're seeing that market starting to move uh, further down uh, the pole to other uh, types of aircraft. Will they be available uh, for our uh, piston-driven airplanes in the near future? Probably, maybe five, ten years, You'll you'll see a decent product come down.
2: To be fair, there's a little company down in Merritt Island, Florida, called Forward Vision that is already producing an enhanced vision system uh, for light GA aircraft. It's an experimental-based system. Uh, that is, it's uh, available for people building uh, kit aircraft. It's under $20,000. consists of a very small, self-cooling, low-millimeter wavelength sensor and a small display screen to go in the cockpit. It's seeing these things move into certificated aircraft and the piston single engine and uh, light twin that uh, I agree with Jeb, I think is coming around the corner. It's a matter of the two lines meeting, the lines of what people like Forward Vision is already doing, moving up, and the very sophisticated, very expensive stuff that's been uh, available for Gulf Streams and Globals uh, for the last seven or eight years moving down and we're starting to see that happen so it's it's a system that has a place in a cockpit regardless of what the future navigation system is for air traffic control because it's a standalone it's an enhancement a major safety benefit i'd have one in a new york minute if i had a place to put it
0: does the faa have a presence do they do they show off anything or
2: FAA has a presence. Of course, we had Marion Blakey here yesterday, uh, you know, asserting uh, poverty on the FAA's part. Uh, Nobody believes that here. There are people from various divisions of the FAA here. There's also folks from NOAA and Flight Service here promoting their services to the general aviation community. There's one new product area that we haven't really touched on. It's been... A presence here for the last two or three years, and we're still probably three or four years away from seeing any of them fly, but these are supersonic business jets. They're going to be very small, very fast aircraft. Uh, Ariane, which is uh, uh, has as its co-chair, Brian Behrens, uh the former president of Learjet and the founder of Galaxy Aircraft, they're working out of Reno, Nevada, on a uh, plan form that was developed by Dr. Richard Lacey. Uh, he developed a thin profile, laminar flow, supersonic wing, basically a straight wing that tapers front and back at the tips. Now, we're not talking about high Mach numbers like a Blackbird. Mach 1.6 to Mach 1.8. I think there's, an, I know there's two other players in this, but Arian seems to be, at the moment, the one that's, pushing closest to actually getting a a prototype built and flying. The good news for everybody that uh, will have to live under the footprint of these things overflying is they're all being designed around concepts that reduce or eliminate the sonic boom that kept Concord from flying supersonic across the United States its entire career. And which also did
1: the Boeing SST.
2: Yeah, big, big, big money you could be talking in the 60 to 80 million dollar range for a, a fairly small aircraft but it would be able to take you from uh, LA to to uh, Tokyo in about uh, 40% of the time to 30% of the time that it currently takes so mm-hmm. there's plenty coming down the road this is a dynamic business and this is a dynamic place to watch it happen
1: yeah the supersonic business jet is as uh, kind of the holy grail of this industry has been for some time Gulfstream a few years back had entered into an arrangement with uh, Sukhoi the the Russian airframe manufacturer that's right back
2: in the and, early 90s yeah
1: and, and I think Sukhoi that, that relationship fell apart for a variety of reasons but Sukhoi has kind of had that on the back burner for a while and I've seen talk of uh, Gulfstream and Sukhoi talking some more uh, well on in that Gulfstream's project. in a- Gulfstream's another outfit
2: that's uh, that's trying to get a dog in this hunt. Uh, they've got their own uh, approach to the uh, quiet supersonic technology. Uh, they've shown it here and uh, demonstrated it here uh, in a simulated in, in a simulator environment. But holy grail is probably the best description for it. It's going to take a lot of money, and it's going to take quite a customer base to justify the investment. But hope springs eternal in the, in the aviation business. And, you know, as most people have heard one of the great ways to make a small fortune in aviation is to start with a large one. <laughs> and uh, I think we're seeing that repeated here in the, uh, in the supersonic business jet realm. Except this time, I think somebody's actually going to pull it off.
3: And also, when you do hear about... Uh, people in markets you would never expected In Kazakhstan, they want VIP corporate jetliners. Well, how much then would those people pay if they could get on that same aircraft and it would get them across the Atlantic where they want to go in half the time? Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly right. Tell me a little bit about the the sort of atmosphere down there at the convention what's it like you talked about it being being big and, and crowded what's the crowd like in terms of demographics is it all just corporate buyers or
2: no it's not it, it's funny it seems to be dominated by people that actually have hands-on contact with the company airplane from an operating standpoint you've got pilots here you've got cabin crew here you've got uh... aviation maintenance technicians here yeah, there's some CEOs and, uh, and some top-level executives down here to sign deals. But one of the big appeals of NBAA to, uh, to the staffs of its member companies are the educational opportunities and training opportunities that run leading up to the show and through the show and will continue after the formal show ends through the following weekend. Operational workshops on different aircraft types at the manufacturer's uh, stage. Uh, see so the uh, maintenance uh, maintenance workshops, workshops on international operations, on accounting, on tax issues. They they cover a very large spectrum here, and consequently you you see a lot of suits. But mostly you see people that fly the airplane, work the airplane, or maintain the airplane. As far as their mood. I don't think I've ever seen this place more upbeat, or this convention more upbeat and more energetic,
1: more more positive, or, and for assured I think than perhaps in recent years. Also, mm-hmm. um, there there is a vibe uh, throughout the, the industry, throughout the and it's reflected on the convention floor that um, um, things things are looking very good for this industry. There, in, in the past couple of decades, there's been a series of ups and downs and and shall we say turbulence? If I could, but it's, right now it's a fairly smooth ride, and uh, people are kind of—I won't say hunkering down, but they're settling in, and they're—they're—they're kind of basking in this, this glow of a uh, fairly stable industry, and it has been for a few years. Um,
2: if the business aviation growth forecast uh, from outfits like Honeywell, Honeywell did their annual forecast uh, uh, briefing for reporters on Sunday. We're looking at. Ten more years of fairly steady, fairly strong growth in the size and mix of the business aviation fleet
1: they're advertising uh, twelve thousand aircraft uh, new aircraft a uh, market for twelve thousand new aircraft over that ten year period yeah, that is a
2: major chunk of new new iron it means more pilots it means more maintainers it means more cabin crew it means more schedulers and dispatchers means more business for the FBOs. Uh, you know, the the factory building it and selling it is just the start of, of something that ripples through general aviation and into the overall economy at large. So the, that, I think, is contributing to the upbeat atmosphere here uh, that even being beat up on by outfits like the Air Transport Association and the administrator of the FAA over user fees is... Uh, it it doesn't depress anybody here. It just kind of ticks them off and makes them makes them even more anxious to succeed. Yes,
0: That's, and I think I, another I, I way was, to go ahead, James. I was going to say I wasn't
3: there, but maybe these guys wouldn't could, could comment. But I heard from the folks uh, in the outfit I'm working with that when they went to the Eclipse press conference and Vern Rayburn announced. That they were going to build 500 jets, I think, over the next year when they went into production. That some of his own team, sort of, their jaws seemed to drop. And that, so, that
1: was. It's interesting you raised that. That that James, I was the one who asked him that question, and uh-huh. uh, the, the question was, how many aircraft do you anticipate having built between now and next year, next show? And his answer was 500. And he said, "Let me refine that." He said, "By the end of '07, calendar '07." Vern Rayburn intends for Eclipse to have manufactured 525 Eclipse
0: 500s. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. <laughs> I love it when corporate presidents make strategy decisions on the fly. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think one other observation, to kind of give
1: the, uh, give our listeners the, the flavor of this show, compared to AOPA or Sun and Fun or, or uh, Air Venture at Oshkosh, Everyone here is wearing a coat and tie, except a few of the journalists, I went. But um, everyone here is wearing a coat and tie. The, the, the ladies are wearing skirts and heels. These are the same people whom at, at the other three shows I just mentioned might be wearing shorts and a T-shirt and sneakers. But it's the same people. It's the, uh, to a great extent the same uh, companies uh, to one extent or another, but it's just a little bit more upscale. So, if you, it, it, those of, of our listeners who've not had the opportunity to uh, be at NBAA, but have visited some of the other shows, that that's perhaps a visual that you can take with you.
0: Although this episode is primarily uh, intended to be an NBAA report, there is one other story we want to talk about. But before we move on, uh, is there anything else about NBAA we haven't talked about and haven't covered?
1: There are any number of other things that we could talk about, but we we do need to kind of to move on. Yeah,
0: so let's move on. We can always come back in future episodes of the podcast and, and uh, continue to talk about the uh, things that have been announced and have begun uh, down in Orlando this week. So uh, the other so- story uh, that uh, we want to talk about is the uh, crash of the Cirrus 20 in New York City uh, into the side of a of a residential building there. And uh, would one of you like to kind of summarize what we know about what happened here? Um, I'll
1: go ahead and take a step at that. Step at that. Um, the, the SR-20... Owned and piloted by a New York Yankees pitcher, um, his last name is Lytle, I believe, L-B-L-E. Took off from Teterboro, uh, was making the uh, the Manhattan tour, if you will. Uh, circled the Statue of Statue of Liberty, uh, was heading up the East River, and if one looks at the chart for that airspace around LaGuardia Airport, the LaGuardia, the the, the Class B airspace around LaGuardia. Goes down, I believe, to uh, 500 feet above the surface or uh, MSL. In that area, there is a corridor that I believe the the ceiling uh, VFR corridor. I believe the ceiling is 1,100 feet, just to the west of uh, LaGuardia. Apparently, the SR-20 was proceeding up that corridor, but that corridor has the dead end to it. And the presumption is that the aircraft went up that corridor intended to make a 180 degree turn and head back the other way and during the execution of that turn collided with the link. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, that's, that's pure speculation at this point. The NTSB has not rendered a judgment not rendered a probable cause either. Uh, it, it The upshot of all this was a lot of general media questions t- to the effect of why is a why is general aviation airplane allowed to be over the city what about aircraft aviation security? What are the implications? And what are the implications for safety? And uh, t- in too many occasions in looking at the coverage, the, the two issues of aviation security and aviation safety were combined. Yeah. And uh, the have you stopped meeting your wife type of questions were, were asked.
0: Right, now, now before we talk a little bit more about the implications of this, James, you are actually based in New York City and, and fly out of that area. Um, yes. Do you have any other insights for us about the peculiarities of these these VFR flyways there?
3: Perhaps uh, I can tell you. I have been up and down what we call an the area, the corridor, countless times, and that is that goes from the mouth of New York Harbor, which essentially comes over the Verrazano Bridge, is right there, it links Brooklyn to Staten Island. You proceed northbound and go up the Hudson River. And that is great because it allows you to get north and south without going through the controlled airspace. Yes, there part of the corridor does go up the East River. I don't know anybody myself, and I've talked to a number of pilots from the area since this, since uh, the accident with uh, Mr. Lytle, who has gone up the East River. There, it is a box canyon. I've been on and off the East River in a float plane, but never in my own plane. It is very narrow there is really no reason to do it and i have to say it kind of part of the accident if indeed that it was a matter of them going up and having the turn they probably neglected to compensate for the fact that there was about a twenty knot wind out of the east that would have been blowing them toward those buildings as they made the turn you'd have to look at the and what happens when you're in a steep bank and how much visibility you have so that you might not see what you're turning into until you kind of level out and look ahead of you, and also, it is kind of a failure of aesthetic judgment on some sense. I have to say, if you really want to see the corridor and and do the aerial tour, they made the right choice in circling the Statue of Liberty. That is an unbelievable experience to be able to be in your plane, go down to about four hundred feet, and circle that statue. And it's like you own Manhattan as you come around. You see it lying out there for you. I have a question also. Were they on the common frequency when they left? Uh, Teterboro, the frequency to announce your position, were they even doing that? So were they prepared enough to take the most basic safety precautions? And having completed the circuit of the Statue of Liberty, what one should do if you really want to enjoy that tour, you proceed southbound, you go by Governor's Island, you fly over the Verrazano Bridge, over the main span of it, turn around there, where there's not a lot of traffic, and head north. And if you want to go up the East River, there you have it laid out before you and you see it coming. But if you just go around the south tip of Manhattan and head north and you maybe you come down the Hudson before that and you think you've got just as much room before you have to turn around north, you've got about three miles before you run into LaGuardia airspace we've been talking about. And there is no time to be getting on to the... The tower frequency at that point, and trying to ask permission. So you would have to do it well before you'd call them, coming down the corridor, and say, "Hey, we're going to be coming there in about five minutes. Can we come through your airspace?" But the bottom line is, there's really not much reason to do that. They weren't. I don't think it sounds like they're in a place they should have been. It sounds like they weren't prepared, and uh, a terrible tragedy ensued.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, sounds like a failure of planning. So I'm clear here because when we were hearing these news stories, I'm not really at all familiar with the with the flyways, the VFR corridors in New York City, but I had always imagined that this East River, River corridor was a, a through way and that you could kind of go north to south and keep going. It, but it's the case that it is truly a dead end from a VFR standpoint. Is that correct? Without I don't
1: talking have a... to somebody. So, uh, I, I have looked at the chart, and, and the, the, the uh, rule is you can go through there Without talking to somebody, of course, as, as James pointed out, it's a good idea to monitor the, uh, the, the, the self-announced frequency. But uh, you can proceed
0: past that dead end, but you have to be in contact and get clearance from the LaGuardia yeah. Tower. And it, and it seems to be the case that um, uh, although there was an instructor on board, um, the instructor apparently is from California. Right. So instructor
3: is uh, from California, obviously unfamiliar with the airspace. And I have to ask about the impact of having a rich, powerful celebrity as your student and whether there is any intimidation factor. And had it been somebody else, if you would have said, uh, you know, I don't think that's such a great thing to do. Uh, they, You know, you can't even see Yankee Stadium from the east side. They would have seen it on the way down the the corridor if there was some sort of connection there. But, uh, again, I, I have to ask. Uh, if you know, what are flight instructors asking themselves now about who their clients are and do they bend the rules for some of them and give some kind of sort of special dispensation for some reason.
0: That's a good, very good point. So, uh, what are the implications of this? What, what's, what happens next? Well, first thing is that uh, the FAA kind of
2: did the wrong thing in my view by uh, changing the access rules for that East River airspace. Uh, Where you've got to be in communications now. Uh,
1: Why do you think they did the wrong thing?
2: Because I think to the politicians, it plays like they won a fight. When they started screaming for more restrictions and and for uh, uh, TFRs and all that, uh, the FAA threw them a bone and says, "Well, we're going to change access rules to this and make it so that they have to be uh, in communications with the with the approach facility there." uh that's going to cut down on the traffic uh to me if you'll pardon the expression it 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 plays a little bit like rewarding a puppy for peeing on the carpet the politicians scream that they needed more restrictions that it was dangerous blah 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 so the faa throws them essentially a meaningless bone and the politicians go see now the next time we just need to scream louder mm-hmm. i know
1: that uh, I, I don't the, i don't disagree I, I think the FAA found itself in, a, in the worst possible situation where they had to do something to, to, to shut up, uh, if you will, some of these politicians. What they did, they issued a notum basically saying that use of that airspace is not authorized by fixed wing aircraft unless they're in contact with the La, uh, LaGuardia Tower. Right. In, in the scheme of things, that's probably a fairly judicious action by the FAA I, I agree that the reasons for them taking that action were unfortunate and, and uh, as someone I uh, I know and respect has has uh, said so famously in the past the FAA will roll over very very easily <laughs> um, um, and this is one of those instances uh-huh. if there was a different leadership uh, mentality at the FAA these days, I'm not sure that that action would have been taken in the fashion that it was taken.
0: Agreed. Well, maybe it is time to wrap up this whole thing. Are there any other little things anybody wants to jump in with? Or uh, I mean, We've covered a lot of ground today.
3: I did want to uh, bring up a, a, a couple of uh, members of our community we've lost in the, just in the last week uh, in air shows. Dr. Guy Baldwin in Oklahoma who uh, I had the uh, chance to fly with in his extra that uh, unfortunately had a fatal accident in at an air show about a week ago, and uh, Nancy Lynn right. from the D.C. area, who I've known for a, a number of years, who also lost her life uh, performing an air show. And to compound the tragedy, her son Pete uh, was announcing as he does when she had her accident. Uh, I'm sure there are lessons to be learned here, and uh, as we find out more, we will try to kind of make some sense of what seems senseless, but for now, I'd just like to, uh, for us all to remember them and to uh, have them learn our prayers.
0: Yes. Well said. Anybody else? Well, we had a little...
2: We, we, we talked so much about business aviation, or at least the business aviation aspect of GA here today. We don't want to neglect a little bit of a landmark that happened in Wichita a few days ago. And that's Cessna's first flight in its new Cessna sport light sport aircraft. The company line remains that uh, this is still a developmental pro- project. They've not yet committed to uh, producing and selling the LSA. They're studying the pipeline potential as one of, one of their employees for to Jimmy, the, uh, tendency of a customer to stay within the family when he buys in at the low end and move up. And Cessna has built a tremendous business around that model starting back in the 50s with the uh, 120, 140 and the 150, 152. And a lot of their Citation customers today started out in Skyhawks or 170s or or Skylanes. And they're looking at the LSA as the new entry level into GA that will help continue that kind of feed. Uh, It's remarkable that they authorized the construction and design of this prototype uh, only 10 months ago. And it's up and flying now. So a little wingtip to to Cessna and Jack Pelton and his team for uh, getting their LSA off. Now, just tell us how soon and where we can go fly one. That's right. And
1: uh, Jeb, any final words from you? No, I was I was going to just simply add uh, something about the LSA. I think that's a great step uh, for Cessna. I think it's a great step for the LSA market. Um, It it brings legitimacy to that market. It brings uh, uh, Cessna's marketing power. It brings uh, uh, perhaps a a new uh, era. Uh, for the light sport market, and uh, it's a welcomed uh, welcomed, uh, piece of news.
0: Well, okay. Well, James, thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, hey, J-
3: it, it's been a thrill. Uh, I've been big fans of, of your podcast for weeks.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. For, <laughs> since, since the late 50s, long, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's a One, long-time
3: time uh, listener right. and a first-time caller. Uh, right. I, I'm thrilled to have had a chance to participate. Thank you all so much for
0: having me. You're welcome. Thank hoping, you, James. I'm hoping that you'll be able to join us occasionally in the future as well. James sure. Winbritt uh, is an author and aviation journalist and musician. Musician, by the way, I, I jumped I over this, uh, James yeah. um, James, along with Rick Reynolds, uh, were, were the two that performed the uh, Air venture Blues song that we used as the tag on a, on our episode a couple a couple episodes ago. So uh, uh, he's just a multi-talented kind of guy. And uh, oh, thank you very much. And although he doesn't, although have, he
1: doesn't fly a Mooney, uh, <laughs> <you> know, <that's, laughs>
0: see, I wasn't going to go there. We actually got just about all the major manufacturers covered now. <laughs> I was thinking, I don't know, but uh, James Winbrandt uh, doesn't have his own website. But if you just Google James Winbrandt by the way. It's a wild ride. Where do you see some of the things that James has written about in addition to aviation? (laughs) So, uh, uh, Thank you, James. Uh, uh, My pleasure. Jeb Burnside, managing editor Aviation Safety Magazine, AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Thanks, Jeb. And Dave Higdon from DaveHigdon.com, Aviation Photography and all that other good stuff. I'm Jack Hodgson, JackHodgson.com. Thank you, everybody. Uh, We'll see you next time. When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette till your last iron day. When you're a jet, if the spit hits the fan, you got brothers around. You're a family
3: man. You're never alone. You're never disconnected. You're here with your own. When
0: companies expected, you're a jet. You're a jet. You're the swingin'est kind of jet. You're a jet. You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming. Something good. If I can wait, something's coming, I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great.